This is episode 37 of Ripe Good Scholar, a groat's worth of wit. But Thomas Nash, in one of his other works that was published, had to be like, by the way, I did not write a groat's worth of wit. <laughs> Robert Greene, on his deathbed, just like dropping bombs and then just letting everyone fight. This is Stephen Greenblatt, author of Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics, and you were listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. One of the first written references to Shakespeare on the London theatre scene is a pamphlet written by Robert Greene on his deathbed, a groat's worth of wit. In it, he warns his fellow playwrights to beware of this upstart crow who was coming in to steal their glory. These Shakespeare references are why the pamphlet is so well known today, but there is so much more to it than that. There is a story, a peek into the inner world of Elizabethan theater, and some insults so damning that the editor had to issue an apology. It's a compelling pamphlet for all those reasons and more, which is why Eli and I will be exploring it today. For this episode, I read A Groat's Worth of Wit, given modern spelling by Nina Green, along with several other articles on the topic. If you want to check out those and so much more, head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP37. Now, let's get to know Robert Green. We are going to talk about the first written reference to Shakespeare in the London stage scene, A Groat's Worth of Wit. Now, is this a glowing reference to Shakespeare? No. No. Pretty much no one is, like, given a glowing reference in A Groat's Worth of Wit. Oh, <laughs> one of those. It's pretty great. But before we get to all of that, we'll start with just the basics about A Groat's Worth of Wit. The basics. The basics. So it was registered to a William Wright. So in the stationer's register, like we talked about in our creation of the first folio episode, it was registered on September 20th, 1592, published that same year, probably shortly afterwards, based on what happens later. But it was published upon the peril of Henry Chettle. Upon the peril? That seems dramatic, which I guess you can expect from theater. Yes, but also not so dramatic because it... He apologizes for it later. <laughs> so it was printed by a John Danter and John Wolfe, which just Henry Chettle worked with Danter for several years, including on a later publication where he apologized for this one. I, I have to say every name so far is just A+. Yeah. Well, now we get to the author, which the author of A Groats with a Wit is supposed to be Robert Greene. Okay. It was presented as his deathbed writings. 
It's been known as the repentance of Robert Greene, which I think will make a little more sense as we go on, but he doesn't really repent much. He mostly just throws shade. Again, this sounds like theater. It is considered to be semi-autobiographical, primarily the ending, where he actually drops the Roberto character and just talks as Robert Greene. Okay, so there's characters in this. Yeah, so it's actually a story. Which is kind of interesting because it goes through the story of these two brothers. A gross worth of wit starts as a father bequeaths his will um, as he's dying on his two sons. The older is Roberto. The younger is Luciano. Roberto has chosen a university path in life, a scholarly path in life, which the father disapproves of. (laughs) So Roberto is left... A single groat, which was worth about four pence. Because when their father started amassing his fortune, when he started his life on his own, he only had a groat. So he basically goes on this big long rant about how like, you with your, you know, silly scholarly endeavors won't know how to actually survive in the real world. So I'm going to make you, I guess. So he just gets a groat. I I love how catty that is from the start. So the younger brother, Luciano, gets everything else. The land, the money, the holdings, the bonds, tens of thousands of pounds, which remember he's writing this in 1592 or just before. This dude was rich. So I'm guessing by the end of the story, Roberto has amassed a fortune and Luciano has squandered everything. Mm, Kind of half right but wait we'll get there then their father is like luciano go find a wife get a hold of more land amass more fortunes you know live like i did and don't just spend all your money so naturally roberto is very angry but his father's dead so he can't take it out on him but he can take it out on his brother that sounds like brothers so he takes luciano to a brothel where he falls for the courtesan lamilia So then through a series of events and it's pretty long, when I printed it out on eight and a half by 11 paper, it was like 22 pages. So like, it's not short, but through a series of events, Luciano eventually starts squandering his entire fortune on Lamilia, becoming essentially a pimp and then being left with nothing. How are you left with nothing when you're the pimp? He wasn't a very good pimp. I don't know. He squandered his fortune is the point. Uh, He probably had some money, but not like the gentry level money he was used to most of his life. That's fair. And was expected to live on. Lamilia turned out great, though. She had like jewels and was at fancy dinners. I'm happy for her. Yeah, she really turned her life around. Go Lamilia. Now, Roberto becomes a playwright. Roberto is recounting this story. This wealthy actor overhears Roberto's story and he's like well Mr. Scholarly Man you should be a playwright so he becomes a playwright and he's a pretty successful playwright I guess for a while because that somehow at the end of his life he also only has a groat well he's come full circle this is where we start getting into where it's less of a story and more of just Robert Greene being like let me tell y'all what I think about you he's like addressing his fellow playwright final message is just straight up Robert Greene talking to people which we will get to because it's great he just people weren't happy I I just want to hear it (laughs) (laughs) let me get my peepers 
Ooh. Now, he doesn't specifically call out anybody. No, I am talking to you, Christopher Marlowe, or whatever. Now, based on some of the context, we can make assumptions um, like they did with Shakespeare, which is like I use large quotes around assumption because they used context clues. Apparently, Christopher Marlowe was one of the people who were quite offended. Christopher Marlowe, famous playwright, possible spy, killed in a bar fight? Yes, that Christopher Marlowe. And you have to remember, you know, this is 1592. This is when Shakespeare's written, like, a few of his early plays. The Henry VI trilogy, Richard III was out, probably Titus Andronicus by that point. He's just starting his career, but he's he's entered the scene. Christopher Marlowe has been around for a little while. Not a, like, long time, but he's established. He's a good playwright. A lot of Shakespeare's early-ish works were influenced by Marlowe. In fact, um, there's been evidence found through textual analysis that Marlowe may have helped write the Henry VI plays. Interesting. Marlowe's not a nobody, like Shakespeare is at this point. So you don't piss off Marlowe. <laughs> that probably, like, socially went bad for Henry Chettle. So he's the one who, like, collected it and got it published? Yes. And what did it say about Christopher Marlowe? Christopher Marlowe very famously was accused of being an atheist, which... When you're talking about Anglican England, the church just started. It was not good to be an atheist. Oh, like death sentence bad? I mean, apparently not because he wasn't put to death even though he was publicly accused, but... Socially catastrophic? Yeah, I'd assume so. I don't know what consequences Marlowe suffered from this accusation because I just... That'd be a whole different rabbit hole of research that I have not looked into, but like, it was not good. It was so not good that like, we know about it today. Fair. Robert Greene refers to him as thou famous gracer of tragedians. And I think there are some context clues in this whole paragraph that they think makes it Marlowe, but that's probably also one of them. He very famously wrote many tragedies. Wonder not, for thee will I first begin, thou famous gracer of tragedians, that Greene, who hath said with thee, like the fool in his heart, there is no God, should now give glory unto his greatness for penetrating his power. His hand lies heavy upon me. He hath spoken unto me with a voice of thunder, and I have felt he is a God that can punish enemies. Why should thy excellent wit, his gift, be so blinded that thou should give no glory to the giver? Is it pestilent Machiavellian policy that thou hast studied? Oh, peevish folly. That's just the first few sentences of this paragraph. Wow. Let's take a moment to put ourselves in Marlowe's position. Pants for a minute. <laughs> Pantaloons, madam. This pamphlet comes out. It's supposed to be the, like, dying declaration of a former colleague, essentially. Like, Robert Greene was a well-known playwright, wrote lots of pamphlets. So you're reading this, and it... Pretty much flat out says, I know you're an atheist and you're going to be punished for it. Is it because you studied Machiavelli? Because then he goes into a whole thing about Machiavelli and being like tyrant. He talks about only tyrants should possess the earth and they striving to exceed in tyranny should each to other be a slaughterman till the mightiest outliving all one stroke were left for death. 
that in one age man's life should end. The broacher of this diabolical atheism is dead, and in his life had never the f felicity he aimed at, but as he began in craft, lived in fear and ended in despair. Like, that's his summary of how Marlowe thinks and will live out his life and then die. For Christopher Marlowe wanting to throw off this idea that he's an atheist because it's such a social stigmatizing label and then have him, this guy on his deathbed bring it up again. Yeah, that that would probably make some people mad. Marlowe has a lot of references to Machiavelli in his plays and stuff, so he clearly studied it. And just not only is Robert Greene bringing up the atheism, but he's like, not only do you not believe in God, but you believe that men should just like be tyrants and slaughter each other till the mightiest wins. And you're still going to die and have nothing. Look what atheism brought you. This is a dude who, if not a friend, was like a colleague or at least acquaintance. And he's basically saying, hey, that Marlowe dude, he's an atheist and will pretty much stab anyone in the back for power. Which is, again, funny, because he got stabbed to death. That's probably why they stabbed him. Also, that's a very bad reading of Machiavelli. <laughs> well, I know, but, like, it's just... Just so catty. And so, obviously, Marlowe was pissed. Yeah. But Marlowe is not the only playwright mentioned. Well, yeah, this is not a Christopher Marlowe podcast. It's not. Although we will have to cover Christopher Marlowe one day. Along with Christopher Marlowe, there were two other playwrights addressed. Which is funny to me because he's like talking to Marlowe. And these two other playwrights assumed to be Thomas Nash and George Peel. Some believe Thomas Nash also helped write Henry VI. And George Peel definitely helped write Titus Andronicus. So these are all potentially people who have collaborated with Shakespeare. Okay. At this point. So he's taken a shot at the shake click. Possibly. I mean, I think Shakespeare did collaborate with maybe some other people. I don't know. Because a lot of that's just being found out now. Like, we think maybe they had something to do with it. But textual analysis can give us a potentially more concrete answer. But of course, that's not perfect. So who knows? As far as I know, he didn't read those two to filth. But I also don't know that much about them to know which one he's talking about at any given time. So then we get to where he talks about Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. There are some people, cough, cough, anti-Stratfordians, who will try to argue that this is not a reference to Shakespeare. And after we read it, I'm going to give all the reasons why they're wrong. Hooray! But we're going to start at the beginning of the paragraph because it's too great. Because again, he's addressing these dudes, trying to give them like sage advice upon his deathbed. Anyway, so this is his paragraph about Shakespeare. Base-minded men, all three of you, if by my misery you be not warned, for unto none of you, like me, sought those burrs to cleave those puppets, I mean, that spake from our mouths those antics garnished in our colors. Is it not strange that I, to whom they all have been beholding, is it not like, is it not like that you, to whom they have all been beholding, shall, were ye in that case as I am now, be both at once of them forsaken? Yes, trust them not, for there is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in player's hide, supposed he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and, being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country. 
So let's again start out that he's trying to bestow his sage advice on his, I guess, friends that he calls base-minded men. So he's saying, you, you, you stupid next generation. You stupid youths. This is kind of old man yells at Cloud. This is old man yells at Cloud 100%. Except, you know, it's theater, so it's incredibly flamboyant and way too wordy. The obvious one is shake scene. Yes. That is not a well-known phrase. That's not a, like, play on a well-known phrase. That appears nowhere else but here. So it makes sense that it is, in fact, a pun on Shakespeare's name. Yeah, that makes sense. But also, he quotes a well-known Shakespeare line. In Henry VI Part Three, which again would have been released by this point, yeah, they refer to Margaret of Anjou as a tiger's heart wrapped in woman's hide. Oh, so a tiger's heart wrapped in player's hide is the tiger's heart would be like a playwright, but wrapped in player's hide. He's a filthy actor. To break down what he's saying about Shakespeare here, when he calls him an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. He's referring here to an Aesop fable about a crow that takes feathers from all the other birds to appear more beautiful. Aw, crow. Crow, you're, you're, you're pretty how you are. And then in the end, his fake feathers are stripped away and he is revealed as, I guess, the ugly crow. Oh, so is he saying every good line Shakespeare has he's stolen? Yeah, I think he is because he says beautified with our feathers. And I think if you take into the context of the sentence before, it's also like they look up to us, they try to emulate us, and then they take our writing. But I think also when he says he supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you so blank verse is largely what shakespeare wrote in yeah iambic pentameter with no rhyming except for the couplets at the end occasionally a couplet at the end but that was a favorite style of the university wits in his writing as a whole robert green is commenting on the actors getting all the wealth and the glory when it's the writers that are giving them the words they speak. He kind of refers to them as like this empty shell that the writers fill. I don't know that you can have a play without actors. But I think that what you're seeing is a portrait of the tension in the theater scene at the time, which is the university wits the men who went to university became writers because they're so much smarter than all the other people, obviously. Of course. And then there's these, you know, provincial playwrights who started as actors who fancy themselves writers, which is ridiculous because they didn't go to university. Yes. How can you know what works well on a stage? By acting and paying attention to what people like and what works. It's silly. They only can write blank verse because they're copying a smarter man. You can see where, though, there's this tension between these two factions of writers. Yeah. And Robert Greene was not the only one who wrote about them. Thomas Nash did as well, and we'll come back to him. But he, he was also one of the ones that wrote about a similar tension between the, like I said, university wits, which I love calling them that, and the provincial playwrights, the player playwrights. Okay, so it, it's this kind of class division. Yeah, which honestly has carried into today. What? We see it in the anti-Stratfordian argument and, and that debate, quote unquote, where it's unbelievable to think that someone who didn't go to university could possibly write this well. 
Yeah, no, that is the, the, the core of it. And the people who are living it at the time are resentful of the non-university playwrights. For being popular, even though they didn't have all of the university bona fides. Yeah, pretty much. And so there's this resentment there, really. And one last thing I'll touch on with his Shakespeare references when he calls him the Johannes Factotum, that just means jack of all trades. So some people were mad that he uh, dug up things about them and then insulted them. According to Chettle in his apology that he published. He published an apology? <laughs> yeah, people oh, were man. mad. This was really at his peril. It was published at the front of Kind Heart's Dream, which was issued later that year. And so he wrote, I guess short for Elizabethan times, apology for a groat's worth of wit. About three months since died M. Robert Green, leaving many papers in sundry booksellers' hands, among other, his groat's worth of wit, in which a letter written to diverse playmakers is offensively by one or two of them taken. <laughs> I'm sorry you were upset. And because on the dead they cannot be avenged, they willfully forge in their conceits a living author. With neither of them that take offense was I acquainted. <laughs> and with one of them I care not if I never be. <laughs> probably shakespeare to be honest the other whom at the time i did not so much spare as i since wish i had for that as i have moderated the heat of living writers and might have used my own discretion especially in such a case the author being dead that i did not i am sorry as if the original fault had been my fault because myself have seen his demeanor no less no less civil then he excellent in the quality he professes. Besides divers of worship, have reported his uprightness of dealing, which argues his honesty and his facetious grace in writing that approves his art. I'm pretty sure from listening to that, that Marlowe threatened to knife him. But Henry Chettle said in that apology, that was a condensed version of the apology, um, but he basically said that those writings that were left, he was left some of that. And he basically was like, his handwriting was super terrible. So I did edit it some, but he wrote it because people were saying Henry Chettle actually wrote it, uh, uh, which people wow. are still saying today as a possibility. Wow. That was some apology, though. I, I do like that he noted how bad Green's handwriting was, but he also basically, like he said, where he has taken the heat out of the word sometimes, I think he uh, said he did for this, too. He cut out some of the meaner parts. <laughs> <laughs> Why, though? Like, I want this. I just want, I want this pamphlet of Robert Greene just reading everyone to filth. Listen, people of the past, for my wife's sanity, please save in a time capsule every mean thing Robert Greene ever said. It'd just be so great. So anyway, like I said, people were accusing Henry Chettle of actually having written it. And there's still some debate today as to whether or not Chettle actually wrote it or Robert Greene did. There's been some textual analysis done, but it's been mixed. 
Like one study said he definitely wrote it and one study said he definitely didn't. Textual analysis doesn't work that well. Especially because in this case, he admitted to editing it. Yeah. So some of his writing style is probably in there. But one of the articles I was reading was like, we don't think Henry Jettle wrote it because honestly his writing wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> so much shade surrounding Girls Worth of Wit and I can't handle it. What I love about theater is that so much of the shade that's been thrown about out about the playwrights from the 16th and 17th century is still floating around. I know, right? It's just amazing. It's great. Even stuff like what this playwright thought about Shakespeare or like someone said Shakespeare knew little Latin and less Greek. Well, that would be Ben Johnson. Theater is a great place where your friends will say something mean about you that will live on for 400 years. <laughs> <laughs> Another accused author was Thomas Nash. And like people accused him at the time of actually having written it. Um, from my understanding, I, I think those accusations came from the fact that he had written similar thoughts before yeah. about theater, about the university wits versus provincial playwrights. So he also had to publicly, in a published work, say, no, I didn't write this. This is what it was like before Twitter. You had to publish your apology. Yeah, they were all like a preface to another work. But Thomas Nash, in one of his other works that was published, had to be like, by the way, I did not write a groat's worth of wit. <laughs> Robert Greene on his deathbed, just like dropping bombs and then just letting everyone fight. Right. He was just like, hey, let's start this fire. I'm not going to be around to put it out. What's interesting to me is kind of the picture it paints of the inner workings of the Elizabethan theater world. These kind of university educated playwrights versus the actors turned playwright and this tension between the two. It's interesting to me because as we discuss this, well, I honestly can't name a single other kind of provincial playwright, but I can name quite a few university style playwrights. Shakespeare is still the most well-known. And, and that is in part because his works have survived for so long. I, I think that speaks to how well the provincial playwright uh, did when it came to writing plays with the performance in mind. How well being part of the craft made you excel at it. I believe there are published comments from actors and at least stories about it of actors preferring Shakespeare because he knew the theater. I mean, when you, you look at Shakespeare, especially in the early works, it's not till the very end that we start seeing stage direction, really, besides exit and enter. And so that is an indication to many people that Shakespeare was there as it was being staged because he didn't have to write in important stage directions because he could tell it to his acting troupe. With a lot of this stuff, I'm always going to be coming back to the authorship debate because I cannot stress this enough. All evidence points to Shakespeare having written Shakespeare and including this argument that he must have been university educated to write so well. Well, guess what? We have a whole bunch of university playwrights and none of them were that good. <laughs> As we're going to go through on this podcast, we look at this image of Shakespeare that has been constructed over time. And I do think that has contributed to how we feel about Shakespeare's writing today. I do think Shakespeare had a 
special talent for creating human characters that we can relate to on just an innate level. I need to read more other, more Johnson, more Marlowe, more Green. We do have the writings of university intellectuals and they're not as compelling of plays. At least they haven't stood the test of time. So why are we sitting here saying there's no way a country bumpkin could have written this? Which, like, I say a country bumpkin, but again, go listen to the grammar school episode. He was essentially a classics major. And so he, quote unquote, uneducated country bumpkin. How could he have possibly written this stuff? Well, because he almost certainly went to the grammar school and learned the Greek and Roman classics. He learned Latin and a little Greek. And he learned how to argue and articulate and write and write well. And then that, along with his theater training, served him well. So the notion that this person could not have written these when I can say, okay, then let's stack up all the university playwrights against Shakespeare. He's clearly still different. So why are we saying there's no way he didn't go to university when we have the university guys and they're just not as good? Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP37 for even more information on A Groat's Worth of Wit and its lasting impact. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us over on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>